Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 23, Bart Gets Hit by the Gulf War. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Sue who we sue. Come close to being a doctor when we come close to being doctors. (laughs) Today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 10, Bart Gets Hit by a Car, which first aired on January 10th, 1991. That's a three-week gap from the last episode that included the whole festive period, so no Christmas special this year, which is good for us as we're recording this in June, and there is no time less Christmassy than that. And of course, welcome to 1991! Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to be talking about the Gulf War. I've already talked about the history of Iraq and the build-up to the Gulf War in episode 21, Saddam Hussein the Daredevil, but this time I'll be going over the war itself, which officially started on January 16th, 1991, six days after Bart gets hit by a car was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. I believe we have a Peter Alice fact. Uh, we have, we have. I put out a call for Peter Alice facts, and I can't remember for the life of me what they are. <laughs> Uh, the main fact that we received, uh, it's uh, 100% true, obviously, is that Peter Alice is the first man to play sexist golf on the moon. Yes, definitely. Uh, that was from a fr- uh, friend of the show, Phil Catterall. Yes, excellent. Cheers, Phil. So keep them coming. And Alice fact aside, that's it, so let's get on with it. Um, aired on January the 10th, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one on that particular day? Oh, Lord, have I been looking forward to this. At number one, on January 10th, 1991, was none other than... Iron Maiden, with Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter. Oh, nice. So, let me tell you a little something about the UK singles chart. Traditionally, the lowest point for single sales all year is the first few weeks of January, when all the Christmas sales are over and done with. Keen-eyed labels got an eye for this opportunity in the 90s and 2000s, particularly where rock and indie bands were concerned. Their fans were less seasonally affected, and with enough publicity it was possible to get them to go out and buy records at their usual rate, regardless of the time of year. And because pop acts were selling in much lower numbers, your usual sales figures might be good for something higher than you'd usually get. Okay. Sometimes even number one itself. It would work for Blur with Beetlebum, It would work for the Maddox Street Preachers with the masses against the classes, lest we forget, (laughs) the first new number one of the new millennium. But not before it worked for the Maiden. Iron Maiden are a British heavy metal band formed in 1975, but their signature sound was completed with the addition of vocalist Bruce Dickinson in 1981. They had so many lineup changes that I'd lost track by the time I got to 1991 in their history. <laughs> They're still going today, and there's been even more changes of lineup since then. Uh, it's that maddening to research, so I'm just going to stick to the song itself. Which, and I was surprised to hear this, was originally written and released as a solo single by Dickinson for the soundtrack of A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Oh, okay. 
The rest of the band liked the song so much they convinced him to leave it off his solo album and put it on the next Iron Maiden album, No Prayer for the Dying. It was released on Christmas Eve to compete with Cliff Richard's Saviour's Day. <laughs> and the wave of publicity sent it to number one on December the 30th. So we actually joined it in its second week at number one. All of this is despite a BBC ban, with the song not being played on Radio 1, and Top of the Pops featuring no more than a 90-second clip of the video. <laughs> it's a brilliant example of the gleeful marketing of something like heavy metal, or I mean, it's sometimes been done with punk as well, as a, as a moral panic, and using the, the backlash from the establishment to actually market it rather than let it be stifled. I, I just think that's brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. I will be proud to post that on Twitter. A quick word about that, by the way. I have one job, which is to post the video of the number one on the Retrospecticus Twitter every Sunday after an episode comes out. And I keep forgetting. <laughs> so I started trying to think of a different way to share them, and time for a cheap plug here. Along came one of my favourite underrated mid-90s bands, Salad, with their new single, Under the Wrapping Paper, which is a good little grower that I encourage you to check out. That's not exactly what I wanted to talk about. What I wanted to talk about is how they decided to market that. So they promoted it by putting together a playlist on Spotify of that song and some songs that influenced that song. And it's been a really good little listen. It made me think, hang on a minute. I could put together a playlist on Spotify of all of the number ones that we've been talking about. Well, they're not all mm. number ones, obviously, but all the tracks we've talked about on Retrospecticus. That's a good idea. And spoiler alert, I have done. And I'm going to share that Spotify playlist once this episode comes out. Oh, brilliant. So there's had to be a couple of uh, compromises made. Um, it's actually not a bad lineup, uh, aside from Saviour's Day. Yeah, exactly. Um, which has to go on there, obviously. But there, there will have to be substitutions because not everything is on Spotify. Um, mercifully, one of them is the Paul Gascoigne version of Fuck on the Time, which, <laughs> which isn't there. Uh, so I've stuck the original on, uh, which is at least very slightly better. And do you know Band-Aid 2 isn't on there? The very oh, first uh, one that we talked about. Uh, all the other Band-Aids are on there. That's just heartbreaking. Band-Aid 2 is by no means the worst one. True. Both of the more recent ones have been just excremental compared to that mm. so yeah I'll be sharing the link to that via our Twitter at uh, underscore retrospecticus once this episode has been released I will be trying to put the videos up I suppose if I was going to miss one missing Cliff Richard wasn't exactly the worst thing I could have done but uh, yeah so uh, interact with us that way if you will yeah nice I also tried to get the podcast uploaded to Spotify but there was an, an unknown technical problem that prevented that from happening okay I shall persevere fair enough Anyway, sorry for that uh, uh, going off on one there. Let's get back to the episode. An episode which had a US viewership Nielsen rating of 14.5. It was viewed in 13.5 million homes. Highest rated on Fox yet again, but of course seconded its time slot to The Cosby Show, which had a Nielsen of 17.8. The production number of this episode was 7F10. Gotta say, other than that bit at the start of the season, they run pretty much uh, to schedule in season two. But there will be some more interesting things to come. Okay. I assure you. And I wasn't wrong last time. No, definitely not. The writer was John Schwarzwelder, as we discussed in episode <laughs> five, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. Yep. Uh, the chalkboard gag was, I will not sell school property. Mm-hmm. I think we agreed that was a bit of a weak one. A bit, yeah. By the way, John Schwarzwelder still doesn't exist. No, no, he, he doesn't. I need to get that in there. Of course. Perhaps Peter Alice knows something about this. <laughs> uh, 
Um, the couch gag is, the couch cannot contain all five family members. Must be smaller than usual. I did mean to check that and forgot. Um, and each falls off the couch to sit on the floor until only Homer is left. It looks better than it describes, which unfortunately sums up quite a bit of this episode. Nonetheless, I shall soldier on. We begin, for the first time, with a title caption. Episode 23, Bart gets hit by a car. And then he does. With the car in question being driven by one Charles Montgomery Burns. And then Bart dies. No way to sugarcoat that one, really. (laughs) Um, Bart floats up toward heaven but gets lost upon the way after spitting over the side of the escalator and not holding the handrail. But rather than dropping into a love tester machine, he is deposited in hell, where after a brief talk with the devil, he finds there's been an administrative error and is sent back to Earth, promising to return in nearly a century's time after lying, cheating, stealing and listening to heavy metal music. What a life. (laughs) With that peril dealt with, we should mention the accident was a bit of a six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of affair, with neither Bart nor Burns paying a great deal of attention, and frankly, both should probably have been ashamed of themselves. Mm. Bart gets off with a bump on the noggin and a broken toe, but this doesn't stop hotshot attorney Lionel Hutz from advising that the family sue Mr. Burns. And then he's gone, chasing a gurney, as Marge prepares to up her mothering to hitherto unseen levels of smothering. Homer is too spineless to confront Mr. Burns, but Burns takes the front foot, calling Homer to his office and offering him $100. Homer reasonably states that this won't even approach the medical bills, and as Burns throws him out in a rage, he comes across Hutz's business card, which doubles as a sponge. (laughs) Despite the state bar forbidding him from doing so, Hutz promises Homer a big cash settlement and an exquisite faux pearl necklace, but they will need to consult a doctor. Of sorts. Hi, Dr. Nick. (laughs) Dr. Nick the only person who even comes close to being a doctor in the room at that time, picks up whiplash and trauma that look suspiciously like smudges and fingerprints on Bart's x-rays, and trusses Bart up in extra bandages. The case is afoot. <laughs> Burns' early statement that he should be able to run over as many kids as he wants doesn't endear him to his peers, and Bart retells his story with a slight bias towards his view of things. After Burns does the same, again, these sequences are well worth seeing... They're just not really worth describing. No, but, but but they're very good. They're almost like dream sequences. Yeah. They're played out very, very nicely. Absolutely. They've almost got a different style of animation just uh, just to pick them out, mm. uh, which is something that The Simpsons actually loses a little bit in the, in the coming seasons. It's clear that Team Bart are winning over the court. So Burns invites Homer and Mars to his mansion, tries to get Homer drunk and offers them 500k, which Homer clearly should take but he hesitates as Hutz has promised him a cool million. Unfortunately, whilst Homer and Marge are discussing the offer, Marge mentions the phony doctor. Burns and Smithers were listening in and immediately rescind the offer and release the hounds. The next day in court, they call Marge as a surprise witness, who cannot lie. Burns offers a third settlement, zero. And Homer is crushed like a paper cup. (laughs) After the fact, Homer isn't sure he loves Marge anymore. He's worried that he'll always see the woman who cost him a million dollars. But when Marge challenges him to look into her eyes, he realises he can't stay mad at her and asserts that he loves her more than ever. As a clearly touched Mo offers all of his patrons a third off on every picture for a whole 15 minutes. One per customer, domestic beer only, no sharing. (laughs) And that's it. Yes. 
it's a very tender moment for for something that's written by a non-existent libertarian gun nut, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a there is a a real total shift at the end of the episode. Um, you almost expect it. There's not much time left when the court case ends, hmm. and you know, it, tacking that on. Not that it seems tacked on, but it has to play itself out in such a short amount of time that it is a little bit jarring as, a, as an ending. But if that's the, the worst thing I can think of to say about this episode, it's a pretty good episode. Oh, it's a very good episode. There's lots of nice little touches to it. I like how the devil, his voice is very, very similar to Flanders. Yeah. Obviously played by the same guy. I did wonder whether, uh, and, and this is a bit out of the blue, but whether the, the devil in The Simpsons later becomes the robot devil in Futurama. Mm. I'll have to look into whether they have the same voice. Um, I know Dan Castellaneta did some voices for Futurama, but uh, yeah. And he's got a Mac, as we noticed. Yes. <laughs> um, character debuts. There's, there were a fair few in that, so mm. I'm afraid I'm going to go on a bit. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so brace yourself, everyone. Because it is a big one for debuts. Let's start with the blue-haired lawyer, voiced by Dan Castellaneta. Now, that voice is apparently based on someone called Roy Cohn, who was Joe McCarthy's collaborator during the communist witch hunts of the 50s. Oh, okay. And he was also Donald Trump's personal lawyer and mentor. Okay. What a twat. Yeah, yeah. He died in 1986. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you agree with me on that. I thought I was being a little harsh there, but, you know, fair dues. Retrospecticus, we don't like Roy Cohn. No, fair enough. Now, the blue-haired lawyer, um, who rivals the squeaky-voiced teen for most high-profile character never to have been given the proper name, because as we all need to remember for Simpsons quizzes, comic book guy's name is Jeff Albertson. Oh, yes. He appears any time a heartlessly efficient member of the legal profession is required. Although I'll always remember him best for wasting the court's time by rating the super hunks in season four, episode 21, Margin Chains. <laughs> At least he is a competent lawyer, though, unlike our next exhibit, Lionel Hutz. Or as he may prefer these days, Miguel Sanchez. <laughs> Either way, he's voiced by the great Phil Hartman, the proprietor of I Can't Believe It's a Law Firm and a literal ambulance chaser. Mr. Hutz has a history of losing cases repeatedly running over judges' children, giving away free promotional gifts such as smoking monkeys and sponge business cards, <laughs> alcoholism, and supplementing his income with babysitting gigs. When we eventually leave Huts forever, and we'll get to the whole Phil Hartman murder-suicide thing, just not yet. Yeah. Can't, can't bring myself to dredge that up right now. Fair enough. Um, but when we do leave him, he's actually become a real estate agent with Red Blazer Realty and seems to be doing all right for himself, which is not a bad way to leave the character, really. Mm. Um, despite his obvious incompetence, we will see Hutz win four cases, not counting his non-canon win against Devil Flanders in Treehouse of Horror 4. In all but one case, he's pretty much just been along for the ride with someone else doing the heavy lifting. But let's hear them, why not? Yeah, okay. So in season three, episode four, Bart the Murderer, he represents Bart, and the case is dismissed when the alleged victim is found alive. Okay. So again, wins, 
but not through any actual skill. You can call that a win. Uh, in season four, episode eight, New Kid on the Block, he represents Homer in his case against Captain McAllister and his restaurant, The Frying Dutchman, who did not provide all he could eat. Mm-hmm. Out of court settlement. Yeah, yep, that's yep. fine. Uh, in season seven, episode 18, The Day the Violence Died, he represents Chester J. Lampwick against Itchy and Scratchy Studios and wins, but only when Bart provides a key piece of evidence that proves his client's claims beyond any doubt. Mm. But in season six, episode 22, Round Springfield, he represents Bart against Krusty the Clown following the ingestion of a jagged metal crusty o and wins the case entirely off screen creaming off 99.5% of the profits in the process. Now, it's an open goal, but it's also the one time that the decision isn't dependent on another character's actions. Mm. So, fair dues. Every dog has his day, and, and that was yeah. Lionel Hunt's. Yeah. We also say a hearty, Hi, Dr. Nick, to Dr. Nick Riviera. He's voiced by Hank Azaria, and is modelled on Hungarian animator Gaborg Supo, Co-founder of Classic Supo Animation, which animated The Simpsons at this stage. Ah. Apparently that was deliberate on the part of the animators, who thought Azaria was doing a send-up of Supo. But he was apparently aiming for a poor impersonation of Ricky Ricardo, as played by Desi Arnaz in I Love Lucy and the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour. I see, okay. Dr Nick is a quack. No, no way of uh, really getting around that. Uh, with a number of slapdash and or fraudulent medical qualifications, who is often seen prescribing ridiculous and dangerous treatments or failing to perform relatively simple medical procedures. He also has a sideline shilling unnecessary products on I Can't Believe They Invented It, <laughs> home of the juice loosener. Yep. He can be seen as a satirical attack on America's healthcare system as he is generally only used by people in great need with little money. Mm, mm. He spends a lot of time on the run from his old friend, Mr. McGreg, with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. <laughs> but if you need him, you can call 1-600-DOCTORB. The B stands for bargain. <laughs> and after bagging on about that bloody underscore for 23 episodes, I have a certain amount of sympathy for him. Yep. Also, he clearly dies in the Simpson movie, having received a wound from which no man could reasonably be expected to recover. Mm. But he has appeared since and has been confirmed by production staff to be fully alive. Unlike Marvin Monroe, who is in some kind of horrible limbo and deserves to be there as he's a terrible character. Yes. Dr. Nick, on the other hand, has been responsible for enough cracking lines that we can at least be glad he'll carry on turning up. Exactly. <laughs> we'll be seeing the good doctor a fair few more times, but his signature episode is season four, episode 11, where he performs Homer's triple bypass. Oh, yes. Albeit with help from Lisa. We also, as if all of that wasn't enough, catch a glimpse of Snowball 1 as Bart rides the escalator to heaven, replete, sadly, with tyre track. Yeah, that's one of the Schwarzwelder-esque little dark moments. That yes, is. yes. And finally, script supervisor Doris Grau provides her first voice for a character named Della, who is Lionel Hutz's receptionist. It's not her iconic character Lunch Lady Doris, who we will hear a lot more from, but it is nonetheless an auspicious and noteworthy debut. And it's and it's very good because she momentarily forgets what phone calls are. Yes. And it's and it's done really, really well. <laughs> so I'm gonna close with some did you knows. Mm-hmm. There's a fair few references in this one, the first of which I totally didn't get. 
So this is all powered by Wikipedia, citation needed. But Mike Reese mentions on the DVD commentary that the episode was inspired by a 1966 film called The Fortune Cookie. Or, as it was known in the UK, Meet Whiplash Willie. Wait, what? Where a man is convinced to trump up his minor injuries from a car accident to wring more money from the perpetrator. Okay, yeah. Whiplash Willie is the lawyer, I believe, in that film. Uh, there's a further little factet about this film. It was the first film to feature a team-up of the actors Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, a famous partnership who would do ten films together, including 1968's The Odd Couple and going right the way through to 1998's The Odd Couple 2. Yeah, well, <laughs> OK. All the others were non-Odd Couple related, although I believe in the films in the meantime they sort of played on the fact that they'd been together in various other films, so... Another reference for you, Bart's words upon returning to the land of the living are based on Dorothy Gale's upon returning from Oz in the 1939 film adaptation of Wuthering Heights. No, I kid you, of course, it was The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) The devil introduces himself with Please Allow Me to Introduce Myself, which is taken from the Rolling Stones' 1968 album Beggar's Banquet and the song Sympathy for the Devil, which is one of the most boring, repetitive and overrated songs I have ever heard. But, but quite iconic. Yeah. Iconic enough to reference. Oh, Guns N' Roses' version is awful. <laughs> Speak of the devil. <laughs> see what they did there. Um, who, by the way, is depicted as right-handed. Not very sinister, am I right? Yeah, well, yes, quite right. He says the bar isn't due in hell until the next time the Yankees win the pennant, which he also states is nearly a century from the time of the episode, which we can reasonably place in early 1991. Now, at that stage... The last Major League Baseball American League Championship Series win, or pennant, for the New York Yankees was in 1981, with their last World Series win coming three years earlier in 1978. So we can assume that the writers believe the Yankees to be in a slump that could have lasted well into the 2080s. Mm. However, history shows that their next AL pennant and World Series wins came in 1996. Ah, a mere five years after this episode aired. I was wondering when that was. Yeah, well, there we go. Bart okay. is generally depicted as still alive at that stage. Mm-hmm. And indeed, in certain records, hasn't even been born by that stage. True. So, one in the eye for Satan there. For which we apologise to our Dark Lord and Master. <laughs> Hopefully our reminiscences of Iron Maiden earlier in the podcast hath pleased him. And that is Bart gets hit by a car. Hail Satan. On to you, Tom. Excellent. Right, so from Satan to Saddam. So... Oh, I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. I just thought of that, just for for instance. Anyway, so to recap, in episode 21, I talked about the history of Iraq and the build-up to the Gulf War to the point of the Western hostages being released. So at this point in the story, December 1990, Iraq, led by Saddam Hussein, is occupying Kuwait, with approximately half a million Iraqi troops stationed there. There have been movements in the UN, with the occupation being widely condemned. On November 29th, 1990, the UN passed Resolution 678, which gave Iraq until January 15th to leave Kuwait or face the consequences. So, the clock is ticking. So let's just take a moment to consider the main motivation for this whole thing. Oil. Although Iraq has its own substantial oil reserves, Kuwait which, remember, Iraq thinks should be within its territory anyway, because under Osman rule it was part of Basra, is pretty much floating on oil. 
Added to that, immediately south of Kuwait is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. If Saddam was to follow up the occupation of Kuwait with a successful invasion of Saudi Arabia, he could, hypothetically, control up to half the world's oil. And clearly that would be unacceptable to the USA, which would later, in 1991, become the world's only superpower. But the fact that Saudi Arabia was involved made things all the more complicated. Even back then, the USA had a poor reputation in the Muslim Middle East due to its backing of Israel. Israel fought various wars against Arab nations in the 60s and 70s, including the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. So any American involvement in the Middle East was never going to go down too well in Islamic countries, especially if it involved American troops being on Saudi soil. Saudi Arabia contains the two most holy cities in Islam, that is Mecca and Medina. Mecca is home to the Masjid al-Haram Mosque, the one that houses the Kaaba, the buildings that all Muslims are required to face while praying. It's also the building that they're expected to walk around seven times when they go on the Hajj pilgrimage. So, you know, this is a big, big deal. Is it a big building? Uh, the mosque is, the Kaaba itself is quite small. It's about the size of a small flat. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering whether walking around this seven times was an onerous task. It depends how close you are to it. But yeah, if, if you're right next to it, then it's fine. However, if you're one of the, how shall I say, people who aren't quite as privileged, then yeah, you have to walk around the outside, and that can take a long, long time. Ooh, okay. Okay, I get it. Yeah. So any American involvement in Saudi Arabia was always going to be very controversial. So in the build-up to the war, the Americans attempted to allay fears in two ways. Number one, they were invited by the king of Saudi Arabia, who at the time was King Fahd. I just remember King Fahd being mentioned in The Young Ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's one where they strike oil in in the basement, and Mike says that he's going to take it to King Fahd to sell him some oil. I mean, why you'd sell oil to Saudi Arabia, I've no idea. And Neil says, don't say bad things about the Arabs, Mike. You'll get us into terrible trouble. And then he imagines a scene where King Fahd is being spoken to by an advisor. And the advisor says, the British Foreign Secretary has arrived to offer his uh, sincere apologies over alleged press criticisms of our mandatory cruelty. And King Fahd says, I will see him now. And the advisor goes, which bit of him would you like to see first? Ah, yes, and the laughter kicks in. Yes. I I love that episode. Especially the end of it, which which is just Vivian going, oh, by the way, it was a complete lie about the oil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. So that's um, King Fard in popular British culture. Yeah. So, so King Fard inviting the Americans onto Saudi soil was not universally accepted in Saudi Arabia, especially by one man, a chap by the name of Osama bin Laden. Ah. <laughs> who was who was at the time right and um, very high up the Saudi social chain shall we say yes Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda would use this decision as a base to judge the Saudi royal family and judge them as infidels essentially so number two the USA formed a coalition against Iraq and made it clear that the force stationed in Saudi Arabia was a coalition force not an exclusively American one. Oh, now that's clever. Mm. In September 1990, US Secretary of State James Baker toured several countries to build up the coalition in what the American press dubbed the Tin Cup Trip. 
So his first stop was to see King Fahd in Saudi Arabia. As well as agreeing to station US troops in Saudi Arabia, he also agreed to American demands to pay $15 billion towards the cost of the war, on condition that Kuwait paid the same amount. The very next day, Baker went to see the Emir of Kuwait, who was holed up in a Sheraton. So basically he was a posh Alan Partridge at this point. And he agreed to that demand. The day after that, he went to see the President of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak. If you remember in the previous episode, Mubarak met Saddam Hussein as part of an Arab League meeting, and he was furious with him as Saddam had assured him the invasion would not happen. Egypt was not the economic powerhouse that Saudi Arabia or Kuwait were, but they could provide a substantial number of troops. In return for their contribution to the coalition, Egypt was given $7 billion in debt relief. In addition, Egypt was an important coalition member as it was a majority Muslim country in the Middle East that had gone to war with Israel in the past. After Egypt, Baker went to Helsinki and then Moscow to discuss Soviet efforts to make peace. But as far as I'm concerned, the Soviet efforts are a bit of a, a, bit of a distraction, a bit of a sort of sidetrack thing. After that, he went to Damascus to meet the dictator of Syria, President Hafez al-Assad, who was the father of Bashar al-Assad, who's the current president. Ah. Syria was another important member to get into the coalition against Iraq, as once again it was a Muslim-majority country who in the past had gone to war with Israel. Syria's demands in return for troops were about more than money. They were provided with approximately a billion dollars worth of weapons and given the go-ahead to cement their control of Lebanon. Now that's very, very controversial. That was the US saying to them, yeah, sure, you can occupy another country. You know, kind of ironic, given that they're going to war because a country's occupying another country. But yeah, there we go. Hmm. So the next stop on Baker's tour was Iran. In a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend, and remember that the Iran-Iraq war, a war that lasted eight years and ended in stalemate, had only just finished, Iran's support was exchanged for access to World Bank loans, with Iran receiving $250 million the day after the war started. Having secured support in the Middle East, James Baker then turned his attention to Europe. His first stop was Germany, and there's a certain irony here. We talked about the unification of Germany in episode 11, the crepes of Lothar de Mezier. The newly united Germany had a constitution to abide by, a constitution which was largely drawn up by the USA. This made Germany a pacifist nation, unable to fight in foreign wars. I just love the idea of James Baker going there and saying, could you help us out in this war? Oh, no, you can't, can you? Can, can you give us some money instead? <laughs> uh, so they did. Germany contributed over $6 billion to the war effort. And a similar thing happened in Japan, because, you know, it was 40 years earlier, but Japan's constitution was a pacifist one written by the states. So instead of troops, they contributed $10 billion. Yes, as, as many a Godzilla film has told me, Japan has a self-defence force as opposed to an army. That's right, that's right. Which is why they're so woefully uh, ill-equipped when the kaiju come attacking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. No defence against giant monsters, not at all. So all in all, the coalition contained 34 nations. It had nearly a million troops at its disposal, with the bulk of them coming from the USA. They were under the command of General Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf. Oh, I remember Storm and Norman. Yep. With the coalition in place and the clock still ticking, James Baker met the Iraqi Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz in Geneva on January 9th, 1991. No agreement was reached, so at this point you're probably thinking that war was inevitable. Well, on January 12th, Congress passed a resolution authorising the use of force in Iraq and Kuwait. 
It passed fairly easily in Congress by 250 votes to 183, but in the Senate it was 52 to 47, so really close. And a key factor in the result was the influence of public relations. Following the occupation, the group Citizens for a Free Kuwait was formed in the US with backing from the Kuwaiti government. This group had millions with which to make videos for US audiences, one of which contained a clip of someone who claimed to be a Kuwaiti nurse who had seen Iraqi soldiers throwing babies out of incubators. This story came to light before the Senate vote, but it turned out to be completely made up, and the woman in the video was in fact the daughter of Kuwait's ambassador to the States. Ah. So in today's world, we'd call this fake news. In the end, all attempts to reason with Saddam failed, and by the time of January 15th, the stage was set for war. Each side had around half a million troops ready, and the coalition had a huge and thoroughly modern air force. On January 16th, the day after the deadline for Iraqi troops to leave Kuwait expired, Operation Desert Storm commenced, officially starting the Gulf War. The opening phase was the air war. The coalition subjected the Iraqis to five weeks of bombing, with over 100,000 sorties being flown during the course of the war. Their first target was the Iraqi Air Force airfields. Taking them out would leave the coalition air forces almost unopposed. After the airfields, they targeted communications infrastructure, and destroying that would mean Saddam would not have a direct line to his commanders on the ground. After that, their targets were more general, but they included Scud missile launchers. Now let's talk a bit about Scuds. So developed by the Soviet Union, Scuds were short to medium range missiles that could be transported by and launched from modified trucks called transporter erector launchers. Ooh. And they are rather phallic, if you've ever seen one. I have indeed, yes. It yes. gave me a funny feeling. Mm-hmm. Yes. Almost sexual, isn't it, Smithers? Anyway. Iraq had a number of these at their disposal. Due to their size and mobility, the Scuds proved difficult for the coalition forces to hunt down. Saddam had access to chemical weapons, and the fear was that these weapons would be used in the Scud warheads, and they could theoretically be used to launch long-range chemical attacks. The day after Desert Storm began, Saddam responded by firing several scuds not at coalition positions, that would come later, but Israel, which is completely the other way. Israel, Israel was prepared for a chemical attack and had issued its citizens with gas masks. Although a chemical attack never came and the scuds that were used weren't particularly accurate, they did succeed in causing widespread destruction in Israel. 74 Israelis were killed, around 200 were injured, and thousands of buildings were damaged. Saddam's strategy in attacking Israel was pretty straightforward. If Israel retaliated against Iraq, then the Arab states would find themselves in a coalition fighting alongside Israel. That was unthinkable, and the US feared that they would leave the coalition or even switch sides in the event of Israeli retaliation. Initially, the coalition tried to allay Israeli fears by sending a Patriot missile defence system there. After a deadly attack on Ramat Gan on January 22nd, in which the Patriots were ineffective in stopping the Scuds, the Israelis were at the end of their patience. They had helicopters loaded with commandos ready to go into Iraq, but they were called back at the last minute after a telephone call from future Vice President Dick Cheney, who assured them that they were doing everything they could to hunt down the Scuds. Meanwhile, the air war continued. With public relations in mind, the US were keen to show off how accurate their technology was. In one clip, they showed an Iraqi going down a road on a motorbike before the target just behind him was hit seconds later. The commentator on the video called him the luckiest man alive. 
Due to all this footage, the press dubbed it the Video Game War. The PR wasn't going so well for Iraq. In the first days of the air war, a British tornado was shot down by an Iraqi surface-to-air missile. The pilot, John Nicholl, and the navigator, John Peters, were captured and tortured in the Abu Ghraib prison. They were put on camera to denounce the war, but they'd obviously been badly beaten. You know, and pictures like that all over the news, you know. Didn't help people feel sorry for Iraq's cause, certainly. A few days into the air war, the Iraqi forces in Kuwait started setting fire to the oil wells. Around 600 oil wells were set ablaze, and millions of gallons of oil was dumped into the Persian Gulf. As the oil fields burned and the air war continued, the USA and the Soviet Union offered a ceasefire to Iraq on condition that all Iraqi troops pulled out of Kuwait. Instead, the Iraqis massed a force at the Saudi-Kuwaiti border and invaded Saudi Arabia on January 29th. And the US released footage of Iraqi troops crossing the border shot from plane, with the American commentator saying, King Fahd's going to be pissed. <laughs> Which is a very, very American commander thing to do. So the Iraqis' target was the small town of Kafji, just a few miles into Saudi Arabia. They took the Saudis by surprise and took the town with little resistance. The Saudis retaliated, and with the help of the Qataris and the US Marines, the Iraqis were driven out of Kafji a couple of days later. However, a huge mistake by the coalition would prove to be a PR disaster for them. On the 13th of February, the US Air Force took the decision to bomb an air raid shelter in the Aramea district of Baghdad, believing it to be used by the top brass of the Iraqi military. Two F-17 bombers scored direct hits with 2,000-pound bombs, killing over 400 people. However, it was soon revealed that the shelter was not being used by military personnel, but by civilians, including women and children. The attack caused outrage, with Jordan declaring three days of mourning. Spain attempted to persuade the states to concentrate on the Iraqi forces in and around Kuwait, rather than Baghdad. And weeks afterwards, the coalition was finally ready to begin the ground war. On the 22nd of February, President Bush issued a final ultimatum to Saddam. Leave Kuwait or face the full force of the coalition ground troops. On February 24th, combat operations began. The first coalition troops to enter Iraq were, were the British SAS, which included the task force Bravo 2-0, and they were tasked with finding and destroying the Scuds. You know, Bravo 2-0, later a film starring Sean Bean. Ah, does he die in that as well? Well, I seem so, because most of them did. Uh, anyway, the General Schwarzkopf had a plan. Rather than directly attacking Kuwait's southern border, he took his armies west along the Saudi desert. The Iraqis were outflanked by what became known as Schwarzkopf's Great Left Hook. The coalition was expecting a fierce fight in their first engagement with Iraqi troops on Kuwaiti soil, but instead they got the exact opposite. The Iraqi troops they came across were conscripts who had been bombed for over a month. They were sleep-deprived, exhausted and in no fit state to fight. The coalition took thousands of POWs as they made their way towards Kuwait City. The coalition and Iraqi forces engaged in several tank battles, but the coalition always came out on top as their tanks had a longer range and could fire on the move, while the Iraqi tanks had to be stationary. So it's that range thing where it's, where it's a bit like having a fight with a child and just holding the child at arm's length. Mm. So the coalition made rapid gains, and the Kuwaiti army retook Kuwait City on the 26th of February. Saddam announced that his forces would leave Kuwait and that he would accept all UN resolutions. Then came one of the most controversial events of the war, 
Although Saddam said his troops would leave, a ceasefire had yet to be declared, so according to the Americans, they were still at war. In an attempt to leave Kuwait as quickly as possible, Iraqi soldiers commandeered thousands of civilian vehicles and began driving back to Iraq along Highway 80. On the night of the 26th, the front and the tail of the column was bombed, trapping the vehicles in a huge traffic jam where they could go neither forwards nor backwards. The vehicles on the road were sitting ducks and they were bombed throughout the night. It's estimated that hundreds of Iraqis died, and of the soldiers who escaped, thousands were captured. President Bush announced a ceasefire on February 28th, just a day after the extent of the highway of death was revealed, with pictures of charred bodies, many still at the wheel, filling the evening news. All in all, the Gulf War was one of the most one-sided in history. The ground war was over in days, and in total, 292 coalition personnel were killed, in contrast to tens of thousands of Iraqis. In the aftermath of the war, the Americans unsurprisingly wanted Saddam Hussein ousted from power. They decided not to pursue the Iraqi army into Iraq itself, as the only mandate they had was to liberate Kuwait. They hoped that as Saddam was comparatively weak, people in Iraq would rise up and overthrow him. Bush himself urged this in a radio address the day after the war ended. People did rise up against him in the north and the south, but these revolutions were crushed by the Iraqi Republican Guard within weeks. The rebellion in Basra, in the south, started when a tank commander from the Iraqi army fired at a giant portrait of Saddam Hussein, and many army personnel deserted. In the north, in Kurdistan, the armed groups there took control of most of the cities. They killed hundreds of Ba'ath Party officials. The reprisals by the Iraqi loyalist forces were indiscriminate and thousands were killed. This led to a refugee crisis, with over a million people fleeing the bloodshed. They led to the establishment of the no-fly zones in the north and the south of Iraq. As for the Kuwaiti oil fields, their destruction was an environmental disaster, with the last of the fires not being put out until November 1991. So, you know, they burned for nearly a year. And as for Saddam, he was finally ousted from power following the Iraq War of 2003. And so there we have it, a potted history of the Gulf War and its aftermath. Well... That um, didn't take as long as I remember. Well, no, because it's... At the end of the day, it was a really, really short, simple war. Because mm. the Americans were fearing that it was going to be another Vietnam. They feared that they'd be bogged down there for years in terrain that they weren't familiar with. But Vietnam was largely jungle and uh, lots of partisans fighting in it. Mm. Iraq was largely desert, and tanks do pretty well in the desert. And if you and if your tanks are way better than your opponent's tanks, and you've got this huge air support, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna do pretty well in it. I do remember the the war at the time. It's odd the things you remember, but I remember that they stopped showing the credits on television shows. So that they could pack in more news. Oh, yeah, because the media absolutely loved it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people were really interested to see what what all the American technology could do. Because, you know, they made a lot of use of the F-117, which was the, uh, the stealth bomber. The one that sort of looked like a, like a black triangle. Yeah. I mean, it looked really, really futuristic. Like, 
it didn't look like a plane was supposed to look, basically. It still looks futuristic now. It does. So sort of aviation technology hasn't really caught up with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, mad. Yeah. But, but one of the things I like about it is that it's supposed to be invisible to enemy radar. So it would look like it was the size of the bee. And I've just got this idea of this uh, radar commander going, there's a bee coming towards us at 500 <laughs> miles per hour. What's going on? <laughs> uh, sure, sure, surely there's another way to tell. Surely. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but, I, but I remember things like Michael Burke reading the news and having the number of the day of the war, just, just a huge number next to him. And yeah, 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 you'd be told about what was going on, and yeah, lots of lots of night vision cameras of like target, 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 boom, you know, them showing off. That's how accurate our bombs are. It's kind of the start of rolling news in some ways. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess you would have had Sky and BSB in this country by then. Oh yeah, but I'm not yeah. sure how how. Sky News was as an organisation at that stage, whether they were 24 hours, whether they were kind of uh, covering it in that way. Certainly, I know by the by the time of the Iraq War, the second uh, uh, Saddam versus the WAC uh, <laughs> confrontation, uh, Rolling News was well in effect. I, I remember coming back from a gig, um, a few beers to the bad, and, and the, the war had kicked off, and suddenly every channel was 24-hour news yeah, for yeah. what seemed like three weeks. Well, yeah, with, with, with the Iraq War, they had uh, they had what they called embedded reporters. Yes. So, yes. so, so reporters who were actually with the ground troops. They didn't have that. In, they didn't have that in the Iraq War. Uh, sorry, they didn't have that in the Gulf War. I keep, I keep getting the names confused, but it's 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 really easy to remember names because because the Gulf War is called that because it because it took place within the Persian Gulf. So. And like the whole of the Gulf, so so Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and and Iraq, whereas the Iraq War was just about getting rid of Saddam, j- yeah. j- j- just about taking over, just about taking over the country, essentially. And as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, the Gulf War was completely justified because you had one country that had occupied another uh, with, without any justification to do so and obviously the thing about babies being thrown out of incubators was just completely made up but there were summary executions going on it really wasn't pleasant being a Kuwaiti under Iraqi occupation no no uh yeah I mean what what can you say and yet the uh and yet the war as you pointed out led to the almost legal occupation of another country of a country by another country Mm. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I must try and cover Lebanon at some point because yeah, it, it, Syria just went right. We're, we're having Lebanon. We're having Lebanon now. Then I was like, oh, that's not great. There's a few conflicts in Lebanon, wasn't there? I mean, I, I'm largely basing this on the fact that there was a, a contemporaneous human league song called Lebanon, right? Um, okay, which, which suggests something was going wrong there in the early '80s. Mm. This is where I get most of my history, listeners. It's pieced <laughs> together from sugar packets or from popular culture of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well the Iraq... Uh, I keep calling it the Iraq War. Well, the Gulf War certainly entered popular culture. I remember there was a game called Action 52, which had Saddam Hussein almost as a mascot. He just kept popping up for some reason. Um, I also remember playing Desert Strike, where you're... 
Oh, is that the uh, the isometric helicopter? Game? That's right. Yes. That's right. And and one of the miss and one of the missions is destroy Scud missiles before they launch. Yeah. Yeah, there's Desert Strike, there was Jungle Strike, and there was another one of some sort. Oh, there was Urban Strike. Urban Strike, that's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, Urban Strike, where you could actually go into buildings as well. Yeah. So, so, so there we are. The culture that came from the Gulf War included video games and, yeah. and several films, including Bravo 2 Zero. Probably the first war that, that had a direct uh, influence on video games, I would have thought, due to the, the technology being relatively in its infancy. I, I didn't see anybody rushing to make a Falklands game. No. Although I bet you there were some on the ZX Spectrum. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, there must have been. I'm going to have to look for that one again. <laughs> yeah, ZX, ZX Spectrum's Falklands war game. Yeah, someone must have made one of them, definitely. And if you'd like to tell us uh, if you've uh, found any ZX Spectrum Falklands yes. games, uh, then do get in touch with us. Uh, either tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus or send an email to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Mm-hmm. Don't forget you can find us on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow our playlist on Spotify when I put it up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, if you really like us, please leave us a review. Ideally a five-star one. Wherever you can. Yep, that would be lovely. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next time. Okay, cheers everyone. Bye.